0: Can you believe we're already coming to the end of Season 2 of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics? This month, we're celebrating some queens and taking a look at some of our favorite fiction. So glad you're joining us, and let's get ready to shake up some history. And happy jubilee, everybody. We are celebrating an extraordinary 70 years on the throne for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. It's the longest reign in the history of the British monarchy, and what an accomplishment. But as someone said to me, what has she done besides live a long time? So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at some of the highlights over the reign of Her Majesty the Queen. I wanted to start with just telling a little story. As you know, I was lucky enough to get to go to London this past February. And while at the airport waiting for my flight home, I was chatting with someone, and we were sort of watching what was on TV together, and that's when they announced that the Queen had been diagnosed with COVID. So I expressed some concerns, and this woman who lived in Britain said, Oh, she'll be fine. She's very strong. And I said, oh, yes, I know. But, you know, it's such an important year, and there are all these celebrations going on, and I'm just worried. And the woman said again, she'll be fine. She's very strong. And it reminded me of how much Queen Elizabeth II embodies one of my very favorite Shakespeare lines, though she be but little, she is fierce. And that is certainly true of the Queen. So the Queen came to the throne after sort of a bit of a difficult time with the House of Windsor. The House of Windsor came into official being in 1917. The name was adopted by the British royal family, who had been the House of saxe coburg but in the midst of World War I, that was a bit German-sounding for the British monarchy. So they established the House of Windsor at that time, and things looked better during World War One, and then they came out of the war, and it turned out that King George V's eldest son, officially Edward, known to the family as David, became king in 1936, and that was in January when George V died. Now, Edward VIII is well known for being the only monarch in modern history, the only British monarch in modern history to abdicate. Of course, he said that he was unable to continue in his responsibilities, quote, without the support of the woman I love. He was in love with Wallace Simpson, and he was not allowed to marry her, and he was sort of given a choice, Wallace Simpson or the crown, and he chose her. And so he abdicated. So in 1936, the year began with George V and then the reign of Edward Eighth, And before the end of the year, George VI officially became King of England. And he had two daughters, one of whom was Princess Elizabeth. Now, George VI, who was known in the family as Bertie, was shy, and you may know he had a stutter. He did not want to be the king. But once he became the king, he was all in. And his wife, Queen Elizabeth, the queen consort, was all in. And they appeared on the balcony. They were a source of huge strength during World War II, as was Princess Elizabeth, who joined the Women's Auxiliary Territorial Service and worked as a mechanic and a military truck driver. And that's while she is heir to the throne. Queen Elizabeth, we know her as the Queen Mother at that time. Well, she was not the Queen Mother at that time. She was the Queen Concert at that time. We sort of think of her as the Queen Mother now. But in any case, during the war, someone asked if the princesses, Elizabeth and Margaret, would be sent out of London to keep them safe. And the Queen said at that time, the children won't leave unless I do. I shall not leave without their father. And the king will not leave the country in any circumstances whatever and so that family was there in london the king and queen were devoted to the family they took the princesses with them whenever they could on official engagements and this was very reassuring the the royal family was becoming very popular again with the british people now the king george the 6th was determined that Elizabeth not be as unprepared to be monarch as he had been. He was sort of drafted in to become king when his brother abdicated it wasn't a long preparation. It wasn't much of a preparation at all. And he was determined that his daughter not feel that unprepared. And so he worked very hard with her. There are all kinds of stories of them working together and him talking to her about the box, the royal box, and meeting with prime ministers and all the things that the monarch was doing. And we know that when Princess Elizabeth celebrated her 21st birthday, That sense of duty that she had learned from both of her parents was very strong. That's when she gave the speech, My whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be spent in your service. So she embodied that idea of service and duty, something that she got from both of her parents. Now around that time, and actually had been going on for a while, we do see Prince Philip come onto the scene. So let's talk a little bit about him. He was born in 1921. He was the son of Prince Andrew of Greece and Denmark and Princess Alice of Battenberg, And there was a line of succession to the thrones of Greece and Denmark, and Philip was in it. In 1930, he was sent to the United Kingdom to live with his grandmother, Victoria Mountbatten, his family was very tied to Germany. In fact, his four sisters all married German princes and moved to Germany. And during World War II, uh, some of his family members were fighting on the German side. But Philip himself had trained for the Royal Navy, and he served in the British forces during World War II. He became one of the youngest first lieutenants in the history of the Royal Navy. Now, how had he met Princess Elizabeth? Well, back in 1939, while the princesses were accompanying their parents, Philip was asked by Lord Mountbatten to just sort of escort the two princesses. They were third cousins, and they needed to be taken around and shown some things. And Princess Elizabeth was only 13 at the time. But by all reports, it was love at first sight. And the two began exchanging letters very early on. And as time went on and the war was over in the summer of 1946, Philip asked the king if he could marry his daughter Elizabeth, and the king said, you must wait until her 21st birthday. So all of that came together, and in March 1946, Philip had to give up his Greek and Danish royal titles, so he was no longer, at that point, a prince. He took the surname Mountbatten, that was from his mother's and his grandmother's family, and became a naturalized British citizen. So there were a number of steps taken. And then their engagement was announced on the 10th of July. And they were he was made um, the Duke of Edinburgh by King George VI the night before the wedding. So right before the wedding, he gets the title Duke of Edinburgh. Now, they were married on the 20th of November, 1947, and there is a letter that the king wrote to Princess Elizabeth about the wedding that I find so moving. So I want to read just a little bit of it to you. So this is the king writing to the princess, but really, it is a father writing to a daughter he loves so much, and that's what I find so moving. Quote, I was so proud and thrilled at having you close to me on our long walk in Westminster Abbey. But when I handed your hand to the Archbishop, I felt I had lost something very precious. You were so calm and composed during the service and said your words with such conviction that I knew everything was all right. I have watched you grow up all those years with pride, under the skillful direction of mummy, who, as you know, is the most marvelous person in the world in my eyes. And I can, I know, always count on you, and now Philip, to help us in our work. Your leaving has left a great blank in our lives. But do remember that your old home is still yours, and do come back to it as much and as often as possible. I can see that you are sublimely happy with Philip, which is right, but don't forget us is the wish of your ever-loving and devoted Papa. Now, just a little thing, that home, your old home, well, yes, that would be Buckingham Palace, but it's such a lovely father-to-daughter level letter. It, the the level of love and caring in that family is just so clear, and the family was always close. At this point, Philip is a duke and not a prince. And someone asked me, well, if Elizabeth is the Princess of Wales because she's the heir, why isn't Philip then the Prince of Wales when he marries her? Well, actually, Elizabeth was not the Princess of Wales interestingly enough, and maybe that will change now with the new Succession Act of 2013, but it has not officially changed yet. And certainly, as of this time, Elizabeth was never the Princess of Wales. That title is only available to a woman who marries the Prince of Wales. The title Princess of Wales is not given to a female heir to the throne. It is only by marriage to the male heir to the throne who is made Prince of Wales. So she was not Princess of Wales, and therefore, Philip was not Prince of Wales. In fact, initially, she was known as the Duchess of Edinburgh. They were the Duke and Duchess of Edinburgh. Um, initially, Philip was stationed in Malta, and the family lived there. Prince Charles was born. Princess Anne was born a couple of years later. So now we have this young family. They were called back to England because the health of the king was failing. And so on the 31st of January in 1952, Elizabeth and Philip left to represent the king on what was supposed to be a lengthy Commonwealth tour. But in fact, six days later, on the 6th of February, George VI died, and Princess Elizabeth became the queen. Now, she was in Kenya, and it was hard to track her down, and the news was officially announced before she was officially told, but she immediately returned to England. There is a story, and it's in quite a few sources, that for whatever reason, there was not a black dress on board, and so the plane had to land sort of off in a different runway, and someone had to get a black dress to her, so that when she emerged back on British soil As the queen, she would be appropriately dressed in black in mourning for her father. So all of that was very important. It was very important that it looked just right and the continuity of the monarchy continued. Now, her coronation didn't happen for a year and a half after she became queen. Of course, back in the time, in medieval times and in the times of the Tudors, it was really important to have that coronation right away. But in the situation that it is now, the coronation is really about pomp and ceremony, and it's not really about the um, imbuing a monarch with any kind of real political or military power as um, as it was. So the coronation was fine to wait, although that was quite a wait. Um, it was the first coronation that was televised, and that was at Philip's request. By this point, it's becoming clear in this royal couple that Philip sort of represents and emphasizes progress, while the queen emphasizes duty and loyalty and tradition. And so together, they're sort of covering all those bases. Now, speaking of tradition, the question of the family name came out. Remember, Windsor was a very carefully chosen name for the monarchy, the House of Windsor. Of course, by tradition, the woman takes the man's name. I mean, after all, Elizabeth had up to this time been known as the Duchess of Edinburgh, her husband's title. So Philip and the members, especially the male members of his family, didn't like the idea of him now becoming a part of the House of Windsor. So, Lord Mountbatten wanted the royal name now to be Mountbatten. It said that Philip wanted the name to be Edinburgh. But in fact, Churchill, who was Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, and other family members and the royals really wanted to maintain the House of Windsor, and the Queen agreed with that. So, the House of Windsor continues to be the name of the royal family. A few years later in 1960, which just happened to be around the time Prince Andrew was born, the King, the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh decided that their descendants who were not in direct line for the throne. So, for example, this would not apply to Prince Charles, who is the heir to the throne, but it does apply to Princess Anne, would take the last name of Mountbatten Windsor. So, when Princess Anne married Captain Mark Phillips in 1973, her name was written in the Royal Registry as Mountbatten-Windsor was her surname. So, that is the surname, but the Royal House is the House of Windsor. So, the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh began carrying out a number of visits around the world. Um, she became the first reigning monarch to visit Australia and New Zealand in 1953. She had her first official meeting with the US president the year before that in 1952 when she met President Eisenhower. And now the Queen has met with all the US presidents except Lyndon Johnson. There's some interesting stuff there. Um, In 1957, Elizabeth made the decision, the Queen made the decision to create Philip as a Prince of the United Kingdom. So from then on, his title is Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. So he is now called again Prince Philip. And, in nineteen sixty she became the first reigning monarch in a hundred years to give birth to a child while on the throne and That's when Prince Andrew was born and then, a few years later, Prince Edward came along too so a number of things were going on in the royal family; some things were going really well. Some things were not. The popularity of the royals goes up and down, of course, over the years, and a decision was made um, in 1968 to create a film that sort of went behind the scenes with the royal family to make the family seem more relatable. It's said that this was considered, it was aired once, and that the queen considered it a huge mistake and wanted it back in the vault, and it has not officially been screened ever again. I know it pops up on YouTube sometimes, but it's not officially allowed to be seen again. And the idea was that it's hard to live on the magic of monarchy if you pull back the curtain and show what the magic is all about. So after that, it became also something the public wanted more and more access. They wanted to get in, they wanted to see And the paparazzi sort of zoomed into being related to that idea, related to, well, you let us in to do this film, and now we want to do it on our terms as well. Interestingly, something we associate with the monarchy and think has sort of almost always been the case, the first walkabout, where the queen or Prince Philip or whomever walks right up to the crowd and begins shaking hands. That happened in 1970 when the Queen and Prince Philip and Princess Anne toured Australia and New Zealand, and for the first time, they walked up and shook hands with the crowd in this idea of a walkabout. That was a tradition that took hold immediately, and it's really hard to even imagine a royal visit or a royal appearance or much of anything that doesn't include some kind of a walkabout. Now, one of the really dark moments in the life of Queen Elizabeth was the murder of Lord Mountbatten, who's related both to Prince Philip and to the Queen. In 1979, he was murdered by the Irish Republican Army, and they took full responsibility for the assassination. And it was such a senior member of the royal family and made the royal family feel very vulnerable. He had also been, um, Lord Mountbatten had also been very close to Prince Charles, really a mentor for Prince Charles. So Prince Charles took that death particularly hard. And some people think that sort of made Charles vulnerable enough that he felt like he needed to get married. And yes, lo and behold, within a couple of years, Charles was married to Lady Diana Spencer in 1981. Now, this was a time of huge celebrations for the royal family. The wedding was watched all over the world. There were huge crowds in London. You've seen the shots from the balcony of Buckingham Palace. The crowds just seem to go on forever. The monarchy is hugely popular at this time, and it becomes apparent That most of that popularity and that love and that attention and adoration is becoming focused on Diana, and this does presents some strain in the royal marriage, and Charles is often taking a backseat to the adoration that used to be his and is now all being sort of targeted toward Diana. So you can see that contributing to some of the problems. And um, things continue very difficult in that family situation, and it is in 1992, that the Queen, as part of her, this is part of a ruby, ruby Jubilee year, and as part of the Jubilee Luncheon, she gave that speech where she called the year An annus Horribilius, and said that was in um, the words of one of her more sympathetic correspondents. So it's marking the 40th year of her reign, 1992, but also... Um, This was the publication of Diana, her true story by Andrew Morton, which was pretty scathing about the royal family. Um, Andrew and Sarah Ferguson were separated in quite a scandalous way with all kinds of tabloid pictures. And Princess Anne and Captain Mark Phillips were divorced. And then by the end of the year, right before this luncheon, there was a huge fire at Windsor Castle, which is the Queen's Favorite home, and she really thinks of it as her family home. And so it was quite a difficult year. The monarchy was beginning to rebound, but just five years later, in 1997, was the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, that car crash, that horrible, some of us can still remember, you know, as the news keeps dripping in through the night. Um, It was devastating. And the queen made the decision that she would stay at Balmoral with William and Harry, who after all had not lost a public figure, but had lost their mother. And she felt like it was important that the family stay there. But the reaction, the response from the public was very negative about that. And so she came back, she came to Buckingham Palace, she made a personal address, paying tribute to Diana. The funeral was a very large event. And by 2002, the Golden Jubilee celebration of the Queen, by then her popularity had rebounded and was coming back. Although personally, it was a very difficult year for her because her sister, Princess Margaret, to whom she had been very close, and her mother, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, both died during that Jubilee year. So it was a mixed a mixed year she was celebrating her um anniversary the tower bridge was lit up in gold in celebration of the golden jubilee she and prince philip traveled to all these commonwealth countries but on a personal level she was experiencing some loss then you know by the time you get to 50 they start having jubilee years pretty quickly and so in 2012 is the diamond jubilee the celebration of the 60th anniversary Now, for these celebrations, you may remember that Prince Philip, who was getting older, was hospitalized partway through the celebrations. And so Prince Charles, when he was greeting the crowds, asked them to cheer extra loudly so that Prince Philip could hear them. And that was sort of a nice way of paying tribute to him and keeping Prince Philip in the celebrations. And it was in 2012 that the clock tower that's affectionately known as Big Ben was officially renamed the Elizabeth Tower. Now, we have some exciting new members of the royal family that have been coming along, and of course, a new generation of heirs in 2013. Now, everyone knew that the Duchess of Cambridge was pregnant the wife of Prince William, and so that that child, you know, is going to be in the direct line of succession. Well, right before the baby was born, by Parliament, the Succession Act was changed. And in 2013, the male preference was abolished. So if William and Catherine had had a girl first. If Charlotte were older, she would not be replaced by her brother. And in fact, although George was born first, Sir George will be the heir. Next in line is Charlotte. But for the first time, when Prince Louis was born, he did not leapfrog over his older sister. She held her place because of the change in the law of succession. So I think that's quite an exciting thing. Now, recently, of course, we've had some personal sadness again for Her Majesty the Queen with the death of Prince Philip, the man she had called her strength and her stay. And the image of the Queen in mourning, following all the COVID protocols, sitting by herself at that funeral, is so poignant and, again, just represents her sense of duty to the nation that in the midst of all of these difficult times, she is following the rules, which is a comparison to a few other notable figures who are not. And let's not go there, but let's just remember the queen was doing what she was supposed to be doing, following the rules as she always does. Now, I do want to mention that as we come into this celebration of 70 years of the Queen's reign, I thought it was really fascinating that the just beautiful purple celebration that has the crown and the 70, that design was done by, it was a a contest, and the winner was a graphic design student named Edward Roberts, and he was only 19 years old, which I find fascinating. But he talked about some of his inspiration and how he came up with the design. And he said, I wanted to give a modern twist to the iconic elements of St. Edward's crown. And so I created a continuous line, which i felt was a fitting representation of the queen's reign i think that is great and a very fitting description that continuous line through 70 years of history that, that the history has been tumultuous and upending and hugely changing and yet there's this continuous line of her majesty the queen showing us that she meant it when she said that her life would be dedicated to the service of her people. I wish you all a happy Jubilee month of June as we celebrate 70 years of Queen Elizabeth II. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. As we wrap up season two, Get ready for some summer fun and look ahead to season three. I'm so grateful to have you joining us. So let's keep shaking up history together.